take them out if you don't have it or you're using a device. You can log on to the Wi-Fi and I want you to find Daniel chapter 8 today. We are working our way through the book of Daniel. So if you are new or visiting with us today, there are, <clears throat> there are some chapters and sections in the Bible that are, well, you, you read them and you're like, what is that doing in the Word of God? And this would be one of them. Uh, last week, we talked about this vision that Daniel had. It, was a little bit peculiar. Uh, we'll revisit that a, a little bit this morning. Um, chapter 8 in the book of Daniel uh, is also uh, another vision that Daniel had. And, and the literature that we're reading now, these fit into uh, what we, in, in the Bible, when we read them, these are um, prophetic visions that Daniel had uh, about things that were going to happen um, Later on. So, if you have, everybody have your Bible and or your device ready to go. Uh, I want to read through uh, Daniel's vision, and then we'll talk about it. So, would you would you stand with me? I'm going to read the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter eight. <clears throat> In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. That's a fast goat. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord 
and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. And he said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. And we might add, and it's a little bit strange. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, the really good thing about participating in uh, a church, uh, participating in small groups and Bible studies and things is that when the Word of God seems and is complicated and complex, we don't have to figure it out all on our own. Amen? You know, we have a long history in the church uh, there's scholars, there's you and I that we can test this material off one another and come to an understanding. You know, sometimes when we read the Word of God, we, we read it and we, <clears throat> there's something that immediately applies, like, you know, this particular behavior needs to change a little bit, and, and the Bible gives us some instruction on what that might look like. Uh, other places in the Bible, the, the benefit or the immediate application for us is that it gives us a picture, maybe a more well-rounded or a, a more full picture of, of who God is. And so as we work our way through this, this passage, I think that we will get a sense of, uh, maybe get a more full picture of, of who God is. Now, as chapter 8 progresses from where we left off reading, uh, in the midst of this vision, uh, Daniel is given an interpretation. So he's standing there, and the angel Gabriel, uh, also the one who made the announcement you know, to, to Mary and to Joseph that you know, you're going to be with child, that, that Gabriel, um, he explains this vision to Daniel. So there's uh, the interpretation there. And when we talked about Daniel chapter 2, if you recall, Daniel was in service, uh, in service to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that scared him. He didn't know what it meant. He called all of his wise people, the people who are supposed to figure out what dreams mean, and he said, I want you to tell me the dream. And they said, or I want you to tell me what my dream means. And he, they said, well, tell us the dream. And he said, no, you have to figure the dream out. Remember that? And they kept going back and forth, like, no, you have to, this is how it works, king. You tell us what your dream was, and then we will interpret it for you and tell you what it means. And the king said, No. And if you can't do that, then I'm going to kill you and I'm going to burn your house down. That doesn't seem kind of fair, but, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't known to be a really nice guy. But his dream was this. Daniel, was, uh, Daniel figured out his dream, told it to him, 
the king had this dream of this big statue. And the head was made of gold, and the chest area was silver, the torso was bronze, the legs were iron, and the feet were a mixture of, of iron and clay. So not really a stable foundation there. And then in that dream, a, a rock came rolling in, struck the statue in the legs, and it fell down and it shattered, and all of the pieces disappeared. Last week, when we were in, when we were talking about Daniel chapter 7, we read about uh, Daniel's vision, and in this vision, he saw this great sea, and the four winds, north, south, east, west, were all blowing furiously against the sea, and it was, the sea was just raging, and the winds churned up out of the deep four beasts, if, you're, if you remember. There was, the, there was the lion that had eagle's wings, and then there was the, the bear, and it was kind of raised up on one side and had the, you know, like three bones in its mouth. And then there was a, uh, the third was a, a four-headed leopard. And then the last one was just this beast that was kind of indescribable. It was... Um, more massive and more powerful than, than all of the other ones, and it had iron teeth. So just kind of ominous out there. So we need to remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, Daniel's first vision in chapter 7, and both of those help us understand what is going on here in chapter 8. Because I need some help in figuring out what the rams and the goats are all about. So if you remember... In Nebuchadnezzar's statue, the gold head represented the king himself, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And then after uh, the Babylonian Empire, the the chest of silver represented the the Medes and the Persians who came in, and they kind of had this joint uh, empire together. That was the the chest of of silver. Then you had the bronze torso, which was the Greek empire, which came in. This is all world history. You can go look this up in your history books. This is is stuff that happened in the history of of our world. And and so we had the Greek empire that rose to power. And then following the Greek empire, uh, the Romans came in and and wiped the Greeks out and took over. And those were the legs of iron. And uh, last week in Daniel's vision, the, the beasts correspond to the statue. So the lion represented Babylon, the bear represented the Medes and the Persians. And if you remembered, uh, the Persians, uh, they came on late and they were a little bit stronger than the Medes. And so they kind of powered up on the Medes. And so that's why the bear was, was raised up on one side. Uh, and then you move to the, the leopard that had four heads. And, well, the leopard is a really fast cat. And, and the leopards were, uh, the leopard represented the Greek empire. And so when Alexander the Great um, came into power, he just swept across the Middle East at lightning fast speed. But he didn't live very long. He only lived to, to be 32 years old. And so he passed away in, I think, 323 B.C. And when he passed away, he didn't have an heir to his empire. And so 
when you have a leadership vacuum, there is this power struggle in the land. And so you had this power grab, and four of the generals that operated under Alexander the Great took control over large portions of his territory. And so that's why there's a, the leopard had four heads. And then finally you get to the, the beast with the iron teeth and just this hulk of whatever it was uh, represented the Roman Empire. So when we get to chapter 8, we're, we're narrowing in and looking at two very specific portions of the statue and two of the beasts. So uh, chapter 8, the ram represents the, the Medes and the Persians. And so you had the, uh, you know, it trampled over everything, great power, but it described the the ram's horns, one was longer than the other. You remember hearing me read that? And so that kind of represented the, you know, the Persians being a little bit stronger of a people than, than the Medes. And then we move in and we talk about this goat. Actually, if you look at the original text, I think it calls it a shaggy goat. So this big fluffy goat, and it had this big prominent horn. Um, and it was fast. Like, it moved across the whole earth without touching the ground. And that's kind of symbolic of the way that Alexander the Great was able to conquer such a huge portion of territory in, in such a really fast time. And so we have this goat that comes in, and wherever it goes, it conquers. It takes over. And it, it pushes out the, the ram. It pushes out, you know, conquers the Medes and the Persians. And, and then in our text, in Daniel's vision, he sees... He sees that horn break off, and the horn is Alexander the Great, the, fir the first one. <clears throat> and up out of that horn, it said, what, four other horns came up, grew up. And so those would be the four different generals or the four kind of big territories that the Greek empire was split into. And so those are, you know, this is maybe uh, more information that you need, but... It's in the Bible. I think maybe we ought to teach it to one another. So those four, one of them was uh, Cassander, and he took control of, of Macedonia. Uh, then there was Lysimachus, who took control of Thrace, and Ptolemy, who had, his territory was kind of where Egypt is, but it kind of started to extend up into Palestine, or what we know of as Israel today. So that kind of territory kind of stretched up like that. And then, and then the fourth one, the largest one, was uh, General Seleucus, and he took the big portion of what we know as Mesopotamia. So all of what Babylon was, all of what Persia was, um, and his territory came down into Palestine as well from, from the north. And so Ptolemy and Seleucus kind of had territory that uh, bordered each other right in the middle of Israel. And you know what happens at borders when there's power struggles, right? That's the war zone. And so Israel was in this constant threat of being trampled over from one uh, you know one general trying to power up on the other one. So it just created this... Uh, tumultuous uh, area, geography, uh, living conditions were, were horrible. And when we read closely in this text and we lay it out in terms of world history and how territories changed hands between one another, we recognize that there's a lot of human trouble 
that's going on in the text. I mean, we're reading about rams and goats, and it you know sounds more like a little storybook that we might read at bedtime, but when you peel back the cover of what this is representing, you, you just get this weight uh, that you feel of all of the hardship and heartache and warfare and abuse. I mean, these people, the, these, these regimes came in and they just crushed everything that was in their way. They, they abused the people. They took advantage of them. They persecuted those because they were just like uh, pawns in, in their struggle to, to gain power and, and territory in the world. And, and I can just imagine how frightened these people were living in areas that were crisscrossed by these superpowers. How confused they might have felt. Uh, they don't know what's going to happen on a daily basis. I mean, these are people who professed a faith in, in God, and I, and I imagine, and rightly so, that the question crossed their minds, does God, did he forget about us? Does he care? I mean, where, where is God? Did, did he disappear on us? Because we've been raised with this faith that he's going to care for his people, and, well, man, we're not, it doesn't really feel like we're experiencing that right now. It feels like we're just totally exposed to, to all the violence that's out there in, in this world. kind of reminds me of the sea from chapter 7, the great sea, you know, with the, the winds blowing on it and churning up the deep, the beasts come out of it. And we talked about what the, when you read the Bible and, and you read the stories of storms and seas and winds and things like that, oftentimes it's representing evil and chaos and confusion and disorder and destruction and if you've ever been out on the sea in a heavy wind, you kind of get the feeling that you're powerless in the face of the wind. I'm not much of a sailor. I'm just going to put that right out there. I think I've told you this story before, but when Lisa and I were, oh, in our younger days of marriage, <laughs> we were at a friend's cabin his neighbor had a catamaran, not a big one, and he took us out and made it look effortless. He zigzagged here and all across the lake and back around, he pulls it up to shore and he says, you want to give it a try? Absolutely. <laughs> that looked pretty simple. So, you know, a brief couple instructions and he hopped off and I'm going to sail my wife around the lake. Well, when you drive a car, you steering wheel like this. If you want to go this way, you, you turn the steering wheel this way, right? <laughs> uh, this was tiller steer. So if you want to go that way, you have to push the tiller the other direction, so it's opposite. And so the piece of advice that I had been given was... <clears throat> uh, you want to turn into the wind. So if you get a gust, turn into the wind. Don't get sideways with the wind, because that would be bad. 
So we get out there, and we, we made it across the lake in record, and we were doing good, right? <laughs> she doesn't remember that part. <laughs> it was an awesome sailing experience that we had for about 10 minutes. And we had one of those gusts that came up, and, you know, I was going to turn right into the wind while I was driving a car with a tiller. <laughs> so I shoved the tiller the wrong direction, and we got sideways with that wind, and it, we went over. I mean, and it felt like slow motion. <laughs> and, of course, our friends were kind of following along in the boat, so there is a picture that exists of the catamaran about right here with Lisa standing on this one diving off. Like, I'm not going down with it. And I'm hanging on to the tiller. I'm going down with the ship. <laughs> the wind, we were powerless in the face of this wind. We made, you know, we made this, I'm, I, I should say, I shouldn't say we. I made the mistake. And, it, you know, if I'm going to tip something over, I'm going to do it right. It, I got it over, and not only did I get over it, I got the mast pointed straight down. And we had to go back, and we had to get a rope and, a, you know, and connect that speedboat, and I had to go down. And, and we righted the ship, but it, man, it was. <clears throat> so for years, I've been carrying around this weight, this burden of, man, the sailing experience that I took Lisa on just didn't, didn't go well. And, and I keep telling her, I'm going to redeem myself. So I'm, I'm going to sail you, honey. And she keeps saying, no. <laughs> no. So fortunately, I have the opportunity to redeem myself. A year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, Paul, he is witness to this because uh, we used his sailboat. He invited us up to go sailing, and we are, we are down at the marina in uh, Olympia, and all the way up there, we're driving up there, and I keep telling Lisa, I'm going to sail you today, honey. And she's like, no, Paul's the captain. He's driving the boat. <laughs> You're not touching the boat. So we get up there, and we push out of the slip, and we get out of the little marina area, and Paul says, do you want to drive? Absolutely. <laughs> Lisa's face just went, oh, no. And Paul, you would say that day was, we had a really good wind that day. It was strong. Like, there were some gale force winds. And I'm in charge of the tiller. <laughs> no, it's up here on Paul's boat. Anyway, so I, I feel like I know what I'm doing. Paul's a good, good captain. He's explained the drill. And, you know, we're going out, and I'm driving, and Lisa is freaking out. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to sail you. I'm going to redeem. This is, today is the day I redeem myself. Well, we live to tell about it. I'm here. But it was a really good day of sailing, and the wind was extremely strong. And there were times when the boat was kind of heeling over like this, and Paul would disappear down into the hold. And that just drove Lisa nuts, because there was one gust that we took that knocked a whole bunch of stuff off the sides of the boat downstairs. And, and she's like, where is Paul? And I'm like, I got this under control. You'll be just fine, dear. <clears throat> I probably tell it with more eloquence, but uh, when you're in the face of a strong wind like that, there were times and gusts that it took everything that I had to hold that boat steady. 
and to proceed into the direction that we needed to go with this wind. Like every ounce of strength and energy that I had to hold that tiller in place to hold steady in the storm. I tell you all that because sometimes in life, wind will gust at you like that and whatever your steering wheel looks like, whether it's one of those big wheels with little fancy little knobs coming off or the tiller, it will take every ounce of what you have, every ounce of your mind, of your energy, of your thoughts, of your emotions to be able to hold the ship steady in the middle of a storm. And I think that's where... Daniel is taking these people. He's reminding them of that. We have to stand strong and hold steady in times when when life challenges us. Maybe it's a maybe it's a financial challenge. You know, with the uncertainty of the marketplace these days. Um Sometimes we find ourselves in a position where it kind of feels like it's paycheck to paycheck. And, and then when, when we get about that far, then some catastrophe hits. And you have an emergency, a crisis kind of a situation that's going to require resources and you think, I don't, I don't know where it's all going to come from. Maybe it's something to do with your health. It takes every ounce of energy to, to get up in the morning, to, to try and navigate through the day, and, and you keep going to a regular routine of doctor's visits, and you just can't figure it out. And then, and then something else just kind of seems to pile on to that. There's all sorts of places in our lives where we just seem to be doing our best you know, to not go over in the wind. And then it seems like there's a stronger gust. And then where are we going to find that effort to keep going without just caving in and giving up? Sometimes the wind just seems too strong, doesn't it? This is one of those weeks where it would be easy for people in our country to feel like the wind is too strong. Since we last met, terrible tragedy in Las Vegas. Horrible. It's been on my mind uh, all week, and I would say that the way that I read Daniel 8 is kind of Sometimes when you read scripture, you kind, of have to, you kind of have to have your Bible in one hand and what's going on in the world in the other. And I think, I know I know, that because this is the living word of God, that, that God has something for us at each and every point. Everything that we face, there's something in scripture that can help us get through. And so I've had the news in one hand and my Bible in the, in the other all week long, trying to make sense out of, out of this. And my questions are, like, why do these things happen? 
Why do these things seem to be happening, happening more frequently than they have in a number of decades? And, you know, if uh, I'm kind of a problem solver kind of a person, and so my brain gets to the point, well, how do we, what do we do to try and avoid these sorts of things from happening again in the future? And I think, and I'm reading the text, and and if, if we think that today's world seems to be in this precarious state, Daniel is here to remind us that it's always been like that. Always been like that. And we're seeing new manifestations of, of what that looks like. And maybe that's, it doesn't sound like it would be all that helpful, but maybe that gives us a little kernel of hope. That rams and goats that were marauding across the face of the, the known world back in that time and just you know, leveling one another, maybe if those rams and goats didn't bring the world to total annihilation, then maybe what's going on today won't either. I've been thinking a lot about uh, where do these evil actions come from? Uh, There's a character in Daniel 8 that kind of personifies what evil looks like. It's this other horn that grows up and displaces the four on, on the goat. And in history... Uh, he's known as Antiochus IV. He called himself uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Daniel describes him like this in uh, chapter 8, in verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise He'll become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. This Antiochus person... He took on this additional name, Epiphanes, and uh, Epiphanes means the shining one or uh, God manifest. I mean, this is a guy who elevated himself and viewed him as a godlike figure, as, as he posed himself as God. It's kind of funny because he was, a, he was very ruthless, but he was also very erratic in his behavior. And so the Hebrew people, the, the Jewish people, they had this other nickname for him. He called himself Epiphanes. Uh, they called him Epimanes, Epimanes, which mean, it just means madman. So they had this play on the word, and they just called him the madman because uh, he was just uh, brutal. And Daniel's vision shows him attacking the host of heaven, which is a way of saying uh, that he attacked the people of God. He was combative towards God. He was aggressive in his persecution of the Jews. He attacked the land of Israel. He massacred thousands of people. He 
came in and he pillaged the temple, he abolished uh, the Sabbath, and he took away the people's daily sacrifices. Um, he outlawed the annual religious festivals that happened several times a year. He made it a crime to be a Jew. To, kind of to rub it in a little bit further, he moved an altar to his own god, Zeus, into the temple in Jerusalem. He set up this altar to Zeus, and he had his priests come in and, and sacrifice pigs on this altar. To take it a little bit further in his uh, <clears throat> anti-Semitism, he forced the Jews to worship Zeus in their own temple. And so the people of Israel, the Jewish people throughout history, if you go back and you read writings, uh, Jewish writings, they kind of viewed Antiochus as the most heinous and vile tyrant in history. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about the things of God. He didn't care about the people of God. His heart was filled with arrogance and wickedness and human pride and selfishness. This man personified evil. So as we read about the characters in this vision, and we have this question, where, where does the, the violence, the, the evil stuff that we see in the world on a daily basis sometimes, where does that all come from? And we look at Antiochus, and then we look at other places in Scripture, and God has something to say. God has an answer to that question. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. What we see going on is stuff that bubbles up out of the human heart. Everything that we think, everything that we do, proceeds directly from the heart. And so if we think about it in terms of, Jesus taught about this, he, you know, he talks about, you know, from good trees you get good fruit, from bad trees you get bad fruit, and, and he kind of quotes uh, Proverbs 4.23 in, in uh, a couple places, a couple of his teaching blocks, and he, he said it's really about what goes on in your heart. It's about what you let in your heart, which really forces in front of us, um, it forces us to consider what it is that we're allowing into our hearts and into our minds. God wants to do this work of purification and removing this, this sin from us, and at the same time, while God is, is cleansing us, we're, we're subjecting to ourselves to all sorts of things that are, that are pumping in poison into our life. And over time, left unchecked, what resides in the heart is what will come out of the heart. So the things that we see from all throughout history, we recognize that maybe it looks a little different, but times haven't really changed. These sorts of violent episodes have been happening forever. It comes out of what's in the human heart. And the devil is out there, and he's prowling around, and he's trying to deceive you. He's trying to fool you into letting your guard down on your heart so he can sneak this other stuff in. 
So when we let anger and hatred uh, into our hearts, it's going to affect how we see other people. It'll affect how we treat other people. We'll be quick to wound other people with our words and lash out. We will be quick. If we are angry and hate-filled, we will tend to be people who push people out to the margins. If we let lustful thoughts into our minds, and that's what begins to control us, and we constantly fill our minds with uh, unhealthy sexual images, then when these images fill up our hearts, see, what's going to happen is that we're going to begin to see other people as objects of our own self-gratification. And when we start to see people in that way, what we're doing is we are trivializing the creative work of God. Because God created us in his image. And when we objectify his creations, we're kind of trivializing the work that, that God did. When we let apathy in, when we let casual thinking, oh, it's, it's not that big a deal. When we let secular ideas into our thinking, when we uh, let arrogance fill our hearts, we'll begin to power up on other people and elevate ourselves over and above them. See, what you put into your heart is going to shape your actions. There's a big outcry in our country right now about uh, all sorts of controls over the objects, tools used for violence. So specifically, the one that you hear right now in the news is gun control, right? Now, I know that as soon as I say, when, as soon as I put those two words together, what's he gonna say about that? You know, every, it seems like everybody has a very passionate opinion, one side or the other. Can I first say that when we have opinions that differ with one another, that's okay. We need to be able to enter into healthy dialogue. And as the followers of Christ, that we are called to share our opinions in Christ-like, loving, and grace-filled ways. Would you agree with that? Okay. Please do that. Uh, certainly, I believe that we ought to be very cautious and very careful about how we distribute and handle weapons that can inflict serious damage on people. I think that should be a given for everybody. We should be very careful about that. But I also think that maybe we're going after the wrong thing. Can we step back collectively, take a deep breath, and go back and take a look at maybe something that's, that's more prophetic, more profound, and, and examine where the issue is really starting? It's out of the human heart. Okay, and if, if it begins with evil tendencies within the human heart, then, then that would cause us to take a couple steps backwards 
and force us as a people, as a society, to evaluate what it is that we're allowing into our hearts that over time is convincing people that these are ideas that are good and that we should take, you know, that they should enact on other people. So what I'm kind of interested in and what I want to know is where's the outcry over the entertainment industry? Where is the outcry over the content of movies and music and television shows that are filled with casual relationships and sexuality and violence? Where's the outcry over video games that's promoting this kind of mass violence? If you spend hours upon hours upon hours watching content that is filling your heart with evil, what do you think is going to happen? Why do we think that we're immune to the not happening? When we can look around at the, at the face of our society, we can look around at culture and we see people who are influenced heavily by these sorts of things. Where's the outcry over that? Maybe that's a better place to begin the conversation. Now I know, step on a lot of toes there. Don't take away my entertainment. I mean, just look at how primetime television has changed over the last 50 years. You know, you had kind of family, wholesome comedies, and, and that just started to slowly degenerate. And pretty soon, oh, we can allow swearing into those, and, and that'll be okay. And, and then, oh, you know, it can become a little bit more risky. And, and then there's, there's more sexuality introduced into these kinds of shows. And over time, you know, it's like we normalize that kind of behavior. Nobody's, you know, drawn a line like, you know, this isn't really healthy. What are the long-term implications of filling a country full of people who are consumers of this kind of thing? They just lap it up. We lap it up. And we think that we're strong enough to hold out and that it's not going to cause us problems. But then we look around and we have things like Las Vegas happen. We look around and, and we realize that we are a people who treat our relationships so casually. It's in and out of this or that relationship and it's no big deal. Why? I think it's maybe because that sort of thing has been normalized through what we're pumping into our heart. Where's the outcry over the greed that corporate America is putting into us on a daily basis? Convincing you that, you know, your life will never be good unless you have this. You know, your life is so empty and hollow, but you know why? I can tell you why. It's because you don't have the iPhone 10. And what happens is over time, we just get sucked into believing all of this stuff and we start to develop kernels of greed in our soul. Where's the outcry over that? Where's the outcry over the secular kind of stuff and curriculum that public school systems are trying to force on our kids.
could go on for quite a while on the ways that our culture is trying to pump poison and wickedness and evil into our hearts. And let me tell you, that's probably the root issue, is that we've allowed ourselves as a society to just get knocked down. And we've been suckered in, and maybe it's time to stand up for those things and start by protecting your own heart. The evil that we see out in the world, I think, is a direct correlation to all of that. Uh, it's overwhelming, it's confusing, it's sickening, it might even seem like evil is winning sometimes. It might seem like God doesn't have any sort of interest, he doesn't have any sort of control over, over those sorts of issues, but Daniel is here to remind a people who are under severe persecution, he's writing to a people who are being brutalized, persecuted on a daily basis. They I mean, they need somebody to come along and grab them by the back of the head and lift their head up out of the swamp so that they can take a breath and they can raise their eyesights and Daniel points them to a God who loves them and who cares for them and who will do something about this. God's grace is greater than any of our biggest trouble. God's love went all the way to his son dying on a cross so that we can fix this kind of stuff, that we can be forgiven, that we can bring our sins to him and, and he'll remember them no more. When we look out and we wonder, well, you know, where is God in all this kind of stuff? God is right in the very middle of it. With everybody, every single step of the way. That's what Daniel encourages his people with. And he reminds them that in the end, God prevails. Now, I told you the stories about the turbulent sea for a reason. In Scripture, if the sea represents chaos and disorder and confusion and evil and, and all those sorts of things, and we also recognize that our lives, individually, corporately, as a church, as a society, if, if we recognize that, you know, we're kind of, we're on this big sea together in a boat and it's churning and the winds are blowing and there's problems all over the place and it seems sometimes that the boat is going to get swamped, uh, let me remind you that there's a couple stories in the New Testament that talk about the very same thing. There's two of them that I put in your core guide. I'm not going to read them for you this morning, but there's, there's a story where, where Jesus has sent the disciples out and they're out in the boat and, you know, late, late in the night. He, the, Mark tells us that Jesus looks out and he sees the disciples just rowing away and struggling against the wind and they're not making any progress at all. They're going nowhere. And then it says that Jesus went walking out to them, just taking a stroll across that sea. And it, Mark actually says, it looked like he was going to pass him by. And they called out to him, and you know, they were afraid because they thought he was a ghost. And, and he comes in, and he asks them about their faith. He steps into the boat, and it's 
dead calm. And then, you know, a little bit earlier in, in Mark chapter 4 is, gives us the picture of all of the disciples in a boat, and Jesus is in, is in the back, and he's taking a nap. Remember that one? And, and there's a storm and the waves, and it's threatening in, and the boat is going to be crushed, and they're going to lose their lives, and the disciples are freaking out. And they call out to Jesus, don't you care about us? Wake up. You ever feel like you need to wake up, Jesus? You look around at what's going on in your life for Las Vegas, and you're like, Jesus, why are you sleeping? Our boat is about to go under. And he says, where's your faith? And he speaks a word to the storm and to the waves, and it's dead calm, dead calm. That's power. That's control. Because if you know anything about waves, if you stop the motion of a wave, that water is going to go for just a little bit. But it was dead calm. And the picture that we get out of those stories is that, one, Jesus has the power. He wields the power in, in, of God over the storms of, of the physical ones and the ones that are going on in, in our lives. And if the sea represents all of this evil and chaos and destruction, you know what? Jesus walked right over the top of it. It's like, I, got the, I, I am trampling over all of the chaos in your life. You need fear not because I am with you. So we get all through this, and Daniel reminds us in chapter 8, verse 25, this, the very last sentence, and he's talking again about Antiochus, and he says, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Daniel picks their head up and says, look up, look to God, because everything you're experiencing right now will come to an end, because God prevails over all of it. So what do we do? as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how, how should we respond to all of this? I like how Daniel responded. Look at verse 27. I, Daniel, I was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Anybody, anybody feel exhausted and worn out when you hear somebody else's bad news? When you, when you turn on the channel and you see that another one of these tragedies has happened, does it, have, does it make any of you physically sick and exhausted? It does me. It did for Daniel. He saw this vision about what was going to happen. And he, had, he just laid down for days, exhausted, worn out, physically sick. But he didn't surrender. And he didn't retreat. And he didn't run and hide. He didn't go into some protective bubble. He went back to work. Then I got up and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond my understanding. I got up and I went about the king's business. As a follower of Christ, I think we should be up and about the king's business in our world. And now what does that look like? It means to hold steady in the storm. 
One of my favorite metaphors for holding steady in the storm is the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. We tend to be a people who reflect or who are more like a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? If it's 75 degrees in here, the thermometer is going to say 75. If it's 46 degrees in here, the thermometer is going to say it's 46. If it's 99, the thermometer, it reflects the temperature of what's going on. So when you go out there and you feel like everything is being amped up around you, the temperature in our society goes up, what happens? Your temperature goes up and you reflect it. What does a thermostat do? A thermostat sets the temperature. I would prefer that it's 67 degrees in my living environment all of the time. If I set my thermostat to 67, it will regulate the temperature in that room to be 67. So if things get a little bit crazy and uh, the temperature goes up, the thermostat will say, no, this is not what we're doing. We need to be down here at 67. If we get a little cold, then no, we need to raise that up. As the people of God, I think we ought to be thermostats in our world. When people are reflecting all of the heightened, uh, amplified, overly heated things that are going on out there, I think we need to be people who hold steady in the storm and bring in uh, a measure of reason. You know, we don't need to go getting all excited about this. We need to pay attention to it, but let's think about this carefully. And on the other end of that, when we are at risk of growing cold, throwing our hands up, well, there's nothing I can do, and we just check out. I think the thermostat helps poke us, warm us up, stoke the fire a little bit to get some care and concern into our lives so that we don't think that we're immune from all of this or that we can protect ourselves from all of it, but that we, that we raise our temperatures so we can be people who are active in the world, and bringing God's kingdom here. And that's how we were taught to pray, to pray, right? When Jesus said we pray for God's kingdom to come now, here on earth as it is in heaven. That's one thing that we can do. Second, do not fear, but trust God. Third, pray for God's kingdom to come. Pray against the systems of evil. Four, we can work against these systems of evil too. We can work for ways that collectively, individually and, and collectively, we can figure out ways to guard what's pumping in to our hearts. And number five is that you can fill your heart with the things of God. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they will see God. And that's who we need to see these days. We need God to pour himself into our lives. And we need him to make himself known in our presence. And the people of God said, amen, amen. Would you stand for prayer?